Let's continue. We will continue from where we stopped under the antipartum nursing care. We'll look at changes occurring during pregnancy. Now, when we are pregnant, there are changes that occur and we think these changes are just synonymous to pregnancy or they are just what we, what we expect when we are pregnant. So we'll look at the various signs in pregnancy. Um, how can we recognize these changes and they can be helpful to both the nurses as the clinician and that of the patients when we want to identify or want to diagnose pregnancy. There are three distinct group of symptoms or signs. These signs are one, the presumptive signs, the probable signs, and the positive signs. These are the three signs of pregnancy that we want to look at. Then we'll take a little look at calculating delivery date. How do we calculate delivery date? How do we calculate number of pregnancy and other, other, other evaluational methods we use to know about these things? Now, the first thing I want to start with is um, the signs of pregnancy, presumptive signs. Now, the presumptive signs of pregnancy, we have to memorize these signs. We have to know what the presumptive signs are. We have to know why do we call them the presumptive signs. We have to know everything about it. And uh, these presumptive signs are just uh, changes that the woman will experience. That is, the female who is pregnant will experience these signs. These signs cannot be experienced by the clinician, by the nurses, unless you are being told that indeed this woman has the following signs. That's when we can recognize these signs as clinicians. Now, so these signs are what we call presumptive signs. And the presumptive signs, like I said, they are changes that the pregnant woman will experience will make her the thing that she's pregnant or she might be pregnant. These signs might also be the result of other physiological factors rather than pregnancy. That means these signs, sometimes we can experience these signs without being pregnant. We can have some other mental problem, mental or uh, mental uh, let me use the word, let me use the word psych, uh, psychological problem. So we can, psychologically speaking, we can think about, about this thing and we assume that we are pregnant, but sometimes we are not pregnant. Let's look at the signs. Number one, we have amenorrhea. We have fatigue, nausea and vomiting, urinary frequency, breast changes. For the breast changes, they're going to be the, the, the black portion of the breast, which we call the areola, will get very dark. Will get enlarged. Um, there will be an enlarged Montgomery glands, which will cause the breast to change. And there can be well, another one is quickening, and we have uterine enlargement. So you have amenorrhea, fatigue, nausea, and vomiting. You have urinary frequency. You have the breast changes. You have quickening, and you have uterine enlargement. There are seven signs that fall under presumptive signs of pregnancy that we must know these signs. Now, look at amenorrhea. Sometimes we can miss our periods. We cannot have regular menses, and it does not mean that we are pregnant. So that's why we said these signs sometimes we can have other problems going on, and we think we are pregnant, and it is not actually pregnancy. But they are still considered presumptive signs of pregnancy because they when we are pregnant, we might have these signs coming up. So amenorrhea, when you have uh, like an infection, sometimes you go a month or two without seeing your period. 
yes still you're not pregnant but when you are pregnant you should not have your menses coming in so you, you can be pregnant and having amenorrhea and sometimes we can have amenorrhea without pregnancy fatigue pregnancy brings in fatigue nausea and vomiting sometimes we can have regular nausea and vomiting that is not linked to pregnancy but in many cases when we are pregnant at the beginning of the pregnancy in the first three months of pregnancy in the first trimester we are engaged with uh we are we are challenged with nausea and vomiting as those early signs of pregnancy we can have urinary frequency as we have something in the uterus if we have fetal in the uterus as the fetal grows in the uterus it puts pressure on the bladder and we're going to have urinary frequency we can have breast changes we can have quickening quickening is when you have a fetus in the uterus that fast slight movement of the fetus in the uterus is all called quickening that jerking movement like you feel your belly is like jerking because you have something in the leg you have a child in there you have a fetus in there is what we call quickening and quickening is usually observed between 16 to 20 weeks of gestation so after 16 weeks we can have quickening below 16 weeks we rarely have quickening so we're going to have quickening coming as the signs of pregnancy after 16 or after 20 weeks of gestation then we have uterine enlargement yes we have our uterus getting enlarged because we have a fetus in there at the beginning of our pregnancy and these signs are observed by the woman who's pregnant not the clinician amenorrhea i as a nurse i wouldn't know that a woman has amenorrhea unless unless she, she told me and i wouldn't know that the woman is having her uterus is getting enlarged at the beginning of uterine enlargement the clinician will not know it is the female who gets to know because your pants you're wearing the clothes you're wearing will will not go around your your belly they'll become smaller and smaller and smaller until when the belly becomes uh, begin to protrude to get enlarged to get this thing that's when we're gonna know by the beginning of the uterus enlargement we as nurses or clinicians we cannot know until you tell so these presumptive signs are signs that the female who's pregnant will experience and will let us know that she's having these signs then the next one is the probable sign now the probable sign probable signs are those signs or are changes that will make us as clinicians to know so the first signs were the presumptive signs those signs are only known by the pregnant person the pregnant woman the probable signs are signs that the examiner can see can examine the patient and we'll get to know and many a time these probable signs the patients herself cannot know that they are having these signs one you have abdominal you have abdominal enlargement now in abdominal enlargement uh some yes that wish she got she know that she having abdominal getting enlarged we ourselves can see that and know that now there is a difference between abdominal enlargement and uterine enlargement in uterine enlargement the uterus will get enlarged when there is an implantation now as clinician you wouldn't know the uterus is enlarged unless the female tell you okay my pants i'm wearing they no longer fit me i think i'm getting pregnant or i think i'm pregnant now for that case it's not as seen as abdominal enlargement in abdominal enlargement we have more abdomen getting bigger 
which we can see and recognize. Even if it's not a clinician, if someone's abdomen is enlarged, you can see that and know that the person having enlarged abdomen. So the uterus will get enlarged, we cannot know. But when the abdomen starts to get enlarged, we get we get to know because pregnancy begins in the uterus. The, 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 the uterus get enlarged, then it moves to the abdomen. Then when there's an abdominal enlargement, everyone will start to know that indeed this female is pregnant. Then we have the Hagar's sign. The Hagar's sign is when there is a softening of the lowest uterus. The uterus become very soft when there is implantation. So when we insert our finger on pelvic examination, we feel the softness of the uterus. And the female who's pregnant cannot feel that easily because she's pregnant. You, the examiner, you will insert your finger into the vagina and you will feel that softness and, uh, and that compressibility of the uterus on your fingertip. And that's when you will have an idea that the woman is pregnant. Then we have the Chadwick sign. Chadwick signs is when there is a deepened violet bluish coloration of the cervix or of the vaginal mucosa. That is the vaginal orifice become purplish blue is very blue or like it's deep 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 red around that point in time when you visualize the vagina orifice you will see that bluishness or that purplish color of the cervix or of the vulva of the vagina on examination so with that the female cannot see in her vagina it is the male examiner or the female examiner or the examiner in general we look at the vagina and know that there is a color there is a color change occurring which is a bluish or a purplish coloration of the cervix and that will signal that indeed there is a pregnancy in there so that's one of the signs it's called the child sign then we have the goodell sign the goodell signs the goodell sign is when the tip of the cervix becomes soft when it becomes soft we call it cervical softening. It will call Goodell sign. So a term used to describe how soft the tip of the cervix is, is what we call Goodell sign. So Goodell signs occur in here. Then we have bilotment. In bilotment, there is a rebound engagement. Uh, that is when you insert your finger into the vagina to check why the person is pregnant, your finger will feel body parts of the fetus that touching that bouncing of the body part on the finger is what we call bilotment so it's called the rebound the rebound or it's called that rebound engagement of the fetus body part is what we call bilotment so bilotment occurs um, when a woman is pregnant another sign is called the braxton hicks contraction now braxton hicks Contraction are false, false contraction that are more going to go through. So these are false contraction. When you hear the word Braxton Hicks contraction, they are false contraction. Why are they false? They are false in that when you're looking at true labor versus false labor. In true labor, when there's contraction, when the female walks around, moves around, there will be an increase in the contraction. Now in the false labor when there is a contraction in forced labor which is called a braxton hiss contraction when the female <clears throat> walks around 
there will be a subsiding or meaning the pains will subside just by moving around so that's how we differentiate a true labor from the first labor when it comes to the braxton hayes contraction so braxton hayes contraction is a false contraction it is not real it is false it is fake because it subsides on movement but in true labor in real labor in real painful contra painful contraction when the female moves around the labor intensifies that's what happening in here so they're going to be braxton his contraction going to come in when you have in private signs of pregnancy and then we can have uh the last one in here is when there is a positive pregnancy test so you want to do a pregnancy test and they say okay the test came back positive so in this situation these are all probable signs of pregnancy and these signs are only recognized by the examiner in both the time these signs are recognized by the examiner so the presumptive signs are those signs that are recognized by the pregnant woman herself the probable signs are those signs that are recognized by the examiner so the probable signs include abdominal enlargement the Hagar sign the child sign the uh goodell sign the bilotment braxton head contraction positive pregnancy signs those are all what we call the probable signs of pregnancy and the presumed sign we said they include the amenorrhea fatigue nausea and vomiting urinary frequency breast changes quickening and nutrient enlargement those were what we called the presumptive signs that are just recognized by the female who's pregnant then the last of these signs we have the positive signs now the positive signs these are signs that are explained only by pregnancy that means these are the most definitive signs to diagnose pregnancy the first two signs we talk about in other conditions that is not a pregnant condition these signs can come about meaning we can also recognize these signs when the woman is not pregnant so it is not a sign that will confirm pregnancy the sign that confirm pregnancy in, is, is what we call the positive signs and there are three there are three positive signs one is the fetal heart tone no matter what happened no matter what fibro you have in uterus fibro will not provide heartbeat will not provide heart sound so heart sound the fetal heart sound is a positive sign when it comes to uh various signs of pregnancy then we have ultrasonography when we do an ultrasound and we visualize the fetus in uterus, that is a positive sign indeed we cannot mistakenly call a fiber a fetus because we have a 3d 4d ultrasound that will give us a play-by-play description of what's happening in the uterus so when you do an ultrasound it defines it is a commentary test of pregnancy it is not like guessing so when it, when it is a male or female it is a male or female in there we'll have that very clearly and the last sign on here is the fetal movement the fetal movement can be explained by an experienced examiner so when there is a fetus in uterus there will be when you examine it when it is examined by an experienced examiner you will feel that fetus moving in uterus so fetal heart sounds ultrasonography fetal movement are the three most definitive signs of, 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 of pregnancy that we call the positive signs these signs cannot lie to us these signs are not fake 
these signs are only explained by pregnancy. Without pregnancy, we cannot have these signs in place. So we have to remember the, the three signs of pregnancy, the presumptive signs, the probable signs, and the positive signs. Now, then after these signs, if we observe these signs, we want to go and verify these signs. To verify these signs, we do the serum urine test. We do the serum and urine test. We could do the serum test and the urine test. We'll see that there is an HCG in the serum or in the urine. Now, when there's a pregnancy, after seven days after fertilization, we are going to have a hormone in the body called HCG. We just call the hemochorionic gonadotropin. This HCG hormone only comes in the body when there's a pregnancy. So after seven days after conception, uh, after conception, we're going to have um, this hormone appearing in the body. And once this hormone is in the body, it is confirmed that indeed the female is pregnant. That's what happened in here. And uh, this hormone also has other tips to look at them. Um, um, the hormone can be produced right after implant, right at the beginning of implantation. The peak is between 60 to 70 days. It declines around 100 to 130 days. So at the beginning of pregnancy, it will increase, it will go, it goes on a rise. After a certain period of time, it drops. So after 130 days, it will begin to, to drop. Now, the higher level, the HCG, this can indicate multi-fetal pregnancy. So if you have more HCG, it's either the woman having a twin or more babies in in her uterus, that's one, or she's pregnant within the tube, which is called ectopic pregnancy, or she's having um she's having form mode. There is a fibroid in utero. If there's a fibroid in utero, she's gonna have increased home or increased HCG. Um, all these things can suggest uh these problems. So also she she might have the child might have Down syndrome. If a child has Down syndrome, there will be increased production of the HCG hormone during pregnancy. Um, the lower the HCG, it suggests that there is a miscarriage. Sometimes there could be ectopic pregnancy occurring. So there are some medications that can cause false, false positive or false negative pregnancy status. So when you are pregnant, you're on tranquilizers, you are on uh, diuretics, you are on anticonvulsant. These Drugs can cause false pregnancy result. Either there will be false pregnancy result in that there is no pregnancy, or the female is pregnant and there is a false negative result. So when you on tranquilizers, you on um diuretic medication, and you on anticonvulsant, these drugs can cause false result. Um, sometimes we can do urine sample at home with the first uh, voter urine specimen in the morning. This can also be accurate in some conditions to know that we have pregnancy or not. So these are all things that we look at and we can go by them and we know indeed the person is pregnant. Uh, but in, in this section, I want you to remember a um, few things. Know the presumptive signs of pregnancy, the private signs of pregnancy, and know the positive signs of pregnancy and know how do we verify when these signs are all coming up. Any question on these signs of pregnant on this on the various signs of pregnancy? Alright, so when it comes to calculating EDD, which is called the expected date of delivery, 
Um, how do we calculate when are we going to have our baby when we get pregnant? Now, the first thing is sometimes we measure the fundus height to know how old the pregnancy is. But the most reliable way to calculate is the Nagel's rule. It's N-A-G-E-L-E apostrophe as Nagel's rule. Now, in the Nagel's rule, there are three things we're doing in Nagel's rule. We have to get the woman LMP. LMP means the last menstrual period. We get the last menstrual period. We subtract three months from the last menstrual period. We add seven days to what we get from the three months, and we add one year. Take for example, if the last menstrual period was February 10, 2020, so we we'll subtract three months from February, meaning we'll go back to January is the first month, second month is December, the third becomes November. So if the person had, if the female had LMP February 10, if we subtract three months from February 10, we'll have November 10. So November 10 will be the if we three months, we'll have November 10. Now, November 10, we have to add seven days to that time we have. So, November 10 plus seven days, we'll have November 17. So, November 17, we must add one year. And remember, it was February 10, 2020. When we subtracted three months, it went to November 10, 2019. If we added seven days, it became November 10, uh, November 17, 2019 we have to add one year so november 17 2019 plus one year it will give us november uh it will give us november 17 2020 so this person want to give birth november 17 2020 we got to add we subtract three months we add seven days and add one year subtract three months add seven days and add one year Example again, if somebody had their last menstrual period on March 11, March 11, so March 11, 2021, when would they give birth? You subtract three months from March 11, go back from March, February that one month, February to January that two months, January to December that one month. So that's three months. So if we take three months from March 11, we will have December 11. Of the whole year so that would be December 11 2020 if we add seven days to December 11 we'll have December 18 of 2020 if we add one year to December 18 2020 we're going to have this uh, we're gonna have December 18 2021 that will be the date of delivery that we're going to put in as the EDD. So we always subtract three months, we add seven days, and add one year. So we 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 will do a lot of these examples uh, during our class time on the weekend, and we review the EKG. We'll do a lot of these examples, how to get these dates uh, and other things when someone is pregnant and having an LMP. Now, then another thing is, I want to, to, to understand how can we calculate the GTPAL, gravity, the parity, the term pregnancy, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the preterm pregnancy, abortion, and living children. How do we tackle this, uh, these different variables? Now, under here, let's look at gravity and parity. In gravity, 
it is the number of pregnancies we are counting. When we are counting gravida, is the number of pregnancies we are counting. We do not consider the number of babies the woman is having. If she had three to four babies in one pregnancy, if she had twins, she had she gave birth to two kids or two babies, it is considered as gravida one because that is just one pregnancy. So in gravity, we calculate, we count the amount of pregnancy, not the babies. Now, when a woman has never had a baby before, has never gotten pregnant before. Now, when a woman has never gotten pregnant before, you are a nolly gravida. If you have never gotten pregnant before, you are a nolly gravida. If it is your first pregnancy, you are called priming gravida. If you have had more than one pregnancy, you are called multi gravida. Now, then we look at parodies. Parody talks about number of pregnancy in which the fetus reach uh term the, the, the fetus reach viability now when we are counting p parity we do not count pregnancy below 20 weeks so any pregnancy that came below 20 weeks it is not our concern in parity we are counting pregnancy above 20 weeks of gestation so if a woman was pregnant and she reached the age of 21 week in pregnancy that is considered as para one that is a parity it's a parity uh, number if she did not reach 20 weeks she reached 19 week that is not considered as parity it's considered as abortion now on a parity when a woman has never got pregnant before she has never gotten pregnant before to reach viability meaning she's considered as a nolly para. Now, there are two things on here. Let's say she got pregnant, but the, the, pregnancy, the, the pregnancy did not reach 20 weeks. If it's stopped at 19 weeks, she's still considered as a nolly para because we said we are counting pregnancy at 20 weeks and above. Any pregnancy that did not reach 20 weeks, it is not considered as parity. So a 20th week pregnancy is considered as priority one or prior one if she has never gotten pregnant to reach 20 or past 20 weeks she's considered a nolly para now if she has completed only one pregnancy that reached 20 weeks she's considered as a primary para she got pregnant with only one pregnancy that reached 20 weeks she's considered as a as a primary para if she got pregnant, the pregnancy did not reach 20 weeks, even five times, she's not a nolly para. I'm sorry, she, she is a nolly para. So if she got pregnant five times and all the five pregnancies did not reach 20 weeks and she had an abortion or she had a miscarriage, she's still considered as a nolly para. If she got pregnant five times and only one pregnancy reached 20 weeks on the, or above, the balance four pregnancies did not reach 20 weeks, She's considered as a primary para because only one of her pregnancies reached 20 weeks. So that one is called a primary para. Now, if she had had multiple pregnancies, more than two pregnancies that reached 20 weeks and above, she's considered as a multi para. Please remember this. This is important to know. Remember it very, 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 very well. And now, another, another rules we call the Cathy's rule. The Cathy rule to, the, to determine pregnancy is um, like uh, you add nine months to the date of 
to the LMP and you add plus one. So like uh, if the woman was pregnant, she got her she 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 saw her last menses on March 11. You add nine months to March 11 and you add one week. It will give you the same result as the Najas rule. So this you could use the Cartish rule, which will include you will add nine months to the LMP and add one week. It will still give you the same date if you use the Najas rule by subtracting three months, adding seven days, and adding one year. It will give you the same date, the same time. Any questions so far? So these are things I want us to remember very well. So in the N class, you have question about the GTPAL acronym. The G stands for gravity. The T stands for term birth. The P stands for preterm birth. The A stands for abortion or miscarriages. And the L stands for living children. Now, for gravity, gravity is the number of pregnant, the, the number of times you got pregnant in total. It does not count whether it was a miscarriage, meaning it did not reach 20 weeks, whether it was an abortion or whether it was a pretend. It does not count that. Once you conceive, once there was a fertilization, there was a fertilization that became known as pregnancy, it is considered as gravity one. Now, for the T is for term babies. Term babies are those babies you're going to have above 38 weeks of pregnancy. Once a pregnancy reached 38 weeks and you had a baby, it's referred to as term pregnant or term term babies. Now, preterm is any baby that you're going to have that is that did not reach 20, 38 weeks. It fell below 37 weeks. It's called preterm. So preterm is between 20 weeks of gestation to 37 weeks. That is called preterm. So preterm is between 20 weeks to 37 weeks. Above 37 to 38 and above is called term pregnancy. Below 20 weeks is referred to as abortion or miscarriage. And the L stands for living children. So we have to remember these things very well to know exactly where we are. So we'll do questions on them in our class on the week. On, on, on Saturday, we will talk about, we'll give questions in the anchor because we'll get anchor style questions. So you will have questions like, oh, a nurse in a prenatal clinic is caring for a for a patient who is in the first trimester of pregnancy. The patient's health record includes one G3, G stands for gravidata, oh gravida, so she's gravida three, she's term one, preterm zero, A abortion is one, and L living is one. So in this in this situation, how should a nurse interpret this information? A says the client has delivered one newborn at term. B says the patient has experienced no term, no preterm labor. C says the patient has been through active labor. D says the patient has had two prior pregnancies. And E says E says. The patient has one living child. This question is about slayer that apply. So in this in this category, we must give the correct answer. So you will have these questions in the N class, and they will ask you for these questions to answer them. So the correct answer will be number will be A, D, and E. So you have these things in the N class a lot. 
I'm going to read a question. Oh, well, the question is going to come like a nurse is in the prenatal clinic, is caring for two patients, is caring for a patient who is in her first trimester of pregnancy. This patient health record indicates G3, T1, P0, A1, L1. How should a nurse interpret this information? Select so order apply. A states the client has delivered one newborn at term. B states the client has experienced no preterm labor. C states the client has been through active labor. D states client has had two prior pregnancy. And E states the client has one living child. So based on the GTPL result we gave you, which one of these statements in the answer are correct? And then you go through your, your now. If you don't know how to define GTPAL, you cannot get this question easy. So that's why on the weekend we'll go through these things and know them step by step to know how they calculate these things. Any question? Any question? So let's continue. Let's look at prenatal care. Prenatal care. Now, in prenatal care, we want to provide those methods for the uh, for the, the first-time mothers who are giving birth the first time. It kind of a little bit stressful to give birth the first time. Of the thinking, the thoughts are coming into your head. You want to be, you want to have control over those thoughts, and those thoughts to have control over them, you got to go through so many different counseling and different prenatal visits. Um, I'm concerned about the birth plans. Now, birth plan is one of the goals we want to achieve during the birthing process, and this needs to be discussed before delivery. It is wherein we ask the mother to tell us what birth plan she chooses or what birth plan is on her mind. So we have uh, one, she might be thinking, ask what else she wants to do, um, the natural method, which is just going through the pains, feeling the pains and giving birth to your baby. Some people love to do that. Some culture will call for that. Um, what else she want to do? Epidural. She want to do epidural wherein uh, we're going to give her some anesthetic agent that will numb, numb, numb her entire uh, pelvic area that she's not going to have any pains during delivery. Or she wants to go through another process called the, the Lamaze or Lamaze method. It's L-A-M-A-Z-E. Lamaze. Now, this method... It is the matter in which um, the, the female goes through classes to help her to control her mind when there is when there is when it's time to give birth. So she goes through the class before birthing time. It helps to it helps to control or to ease the, the, the discomfort that comes with labor and delivery. So this Lamaze method. Um, the woman can attend various sections, various sections that she's going to go in and talk about how it's going to be like the pains, discussing coping mechanisms, deep breathing exercises, relaxation techniques, how she's going to relax to help her to go through the discomfort that comes with the pregnancy, with labor and delivery. That's about Lamez method, L-A-M-A-Z-E. So all of these things are all different breath techniques, different birth plans that the female needs to talk about before delivery. Now, then we also, when we get at the initial prenatal visit, the first initial prenatal visit, don't look at things I want to do. Now, 
it begins with initial assessment. The first two of weeks, that is the first three months, we go in, we do assessment, and this assessment will continue until birth or until delivery. Now, we'll obtain the medical records, the medical history, the nursing history, which include their support system, um, what are the risk factors they have as parents, disease-wise disease and other risk factors, their social economic background. We'll look at all these things then. After this, on the first visit, um, we make sure that the, um, she goes in at least, so, so the first time after 16 weeks, she goes in at this, uh, uh, now let me, let, let's say it this way. Um, the prenatal visits are scheduled monthly for 16 weeks to 28 weeks. So every month she goes in monthly from the 16th week to 28th week is done every month. So every four weeks, she goes in once from the 16th week to the 28th week. Now, after that, she's going to go in every two weeks from 29 weeks to 36, to 36 weeks. She goes in every two weeks. After that, from, 30, uh, from 36 weeks until she gave birth, she needs to go in every week. So as we go nearer to delivery, she needs to go in more frequently. So she's going to have a shorter interval. So from 36 weeks and above, she needs to go in every week. Between 29 to 36 weeks, she needs to go in every two weeks. Between 16 to 28 weeks, she needs to go in every month. So we have to know the duration, the interval of going in for this visit. We have to know them. It is important that we know them. We have to know them. Now, then when she goes in the very first visit, we have to get the EDD, the date of delivery. What time did she miss her period, her last menstrual period? Which is called the LMP. We'll ask for the LMP and we'll calculate the EDD, her expected date of delivery. We need to calculate it at the first prenatal visit. The next thing we need to do, we need to obtain her medical record and her nursing history. We need to perform a physical examination to include her baseline weight her vital sign, her pelvic examination. These are things that we'll use to go by as she progresses in pregnancy. Then we'll obtain various laboratory tests at the initial visit, which include the hemoglobin to know the blood level or the hematocrit to know that she's anemic or she has normal blood level, the WBC, her blood type and her RH type, will do her rubella titer, will do her urinalysis, We'll do the renal function test. We'll do the pap smell test. We'll do the cervical culture. We'll do the HIV antibody. We'll do the Hep B surface antigen. We'll do the toxoplasmosis. We'll do the RP arrow or we'll do the VD arrow. These are tests we must do on the first initial visit of the prenatal uh, of the patient who's going to the prenatal clinic. So we have to know all these tests to do them at the first prenatal visit. Then, ongoing, we we'll monitor that is subsequent visit, subsequent visit uh, visitation after the first visit. We we'll monitor the patient weight, the blood pressure, the urine for glucose, for proteins and leukocyte or wet blood cells. Then we we'll monitor for edema of the lower leg, which could be some of preeclampsia or other conditions. We monitor the fetal development as time goes by. We're going to now detect the fetal heart rate. 
with ultrasound, the fetal heartbeat. These are things we will do. Then we will go in, we will listen to the fetal heart sound through a Doppler ultrasound at the late in the in the late first trimester. That's when we will try to monitor the fetal heart sound. Then we will measure the fundus height. The fundal height will start to be measured from 18 weeks up to 30 weeks. So we can measure the fundus height from 18 weeks of pregnancy up to 30 weeks. Below 18 weeks, we cannot measure the fundus height. We might feel a little bit of mass right, below, up, right above the symphysis pubics. But that mass, we cannot use a tip rule to measure the fundal height because it will be very tiny. So after 18 weeks and above, then we begin to measure the fundus height for the pregnant woman. Now, we also make sure um, we want to look at the fetal health history. Then we look at the movement. Like we said, the fetus in utero begin to move, begin to move at 16 to 20 weeks of gestation. Then we start to provide the mother education on how to manage uh, vomiting, fatigue, backache. Um, heartburns, sexuality, and other things, then these things must be taught to the mother how to manage these things. Then we can still perform Leopold's maneuver to perpetuate uh, the presenting part in the position of the fetus, which is called the, the Leopold's maneuver. We will we, we, we assess that and know exactly what's going on. Then we will try to like uh, sort of perform those pelvic exercises um look at other provision to see whether the patient is okay we'll do those things then we can administer the rogan that is the immunoglobulin rm we administer rm around the, around the 28 weeks of gestation for patients who are rh negative so if the mother is rh negative she must take the immunoglobulin the rogan d is given to her at 28 weeks of gestation once she's RH negative. If she's RH positive, she's good. We must give her to prevent any blood blood incompatibility that might come with a condition called the erectroblastosis uh, fetalis. It's a condition in which um, when the mother blood gets mixed with the fetus blood during delivery, after the child is born, the subsequent child or babies that are going to come after the first baby who had RA positive blood, those subsequent babies will not survive because they will have blood blood incompatibility that might cause increased red blood cell destruction, that might cause increased bilirubin, that might kill the next set of babies that the mother is going to have. Now, we're going to explain that in depth when we, when we get to disease condition in pregnancy. Now. So we do all these laboratory procedures when you are pregnant. We do the blood type, the RH factors, and we do other antibody tests. These antibody tests can help us um, to carry out exactly what we want to know during pregnancy. So we do viral routine laboratory blood tests during our prenatal visit. Um, we do blood type. That is the blood type, that is A, blood B, blood, or A, B, blood, or O type. We'll do that. We do the RH factor. And we also check for the presence of irregular antibodies. Like in the case of uh, um, erectroblastosis fetalis. 
Now, this test I just talked about, they determine the risk of the risk for maternal fetal blood incompatibility, that is the erythroblastosis fetalis. So it, it does it, it determines um, the incompatibility of blood to blood between the mother and the fetus, and it, it also determines uh, neonatal hyperbilirubinemia, that is the result of the erythroblastosis fetalis. Now we can do the indirect Combs test. Indirect comb test is a test that identifies the patients sensitized to RA positive blood. So when we do an indirect comb test, it helps us to know whether the patient, the mother has been exposed to RH positive blood. That's the function of the indirect comb test. Um, then we also, it can be done for patients who are RH negative and not sensitized. So the indirect comb test is repeated between 27 or 24 weeks and 28 weeks of gestation. So indirect comb test can be done for two different people. The first group of individuals that do the indirect comb test are individuals who are exposed to RH positive blood. Um, that's one. And we can also do the indirect comb test for individuals who are RH negative um, at the age of 24 weeks of gestation and also at the 28th week of gestation. Then we can do the CBC with differential. We can do the HGB, the hemoglobin, and we can do the hematocrit. Now the CBC with differential, the hemoglobin, the hematocrit, this test detects infection and anemia. So the CBC differential detects infection, while the hemoglobin or the hematocrit detects uh, anemia. Then we do the hemoglobin erythrophoresis. Um, this test determines also it detects or identifies hemoglobin uh, hemoglobin or other like a sickle cell anemia or thalassemia this test determines or uh, identifies sickle cell anemia and thalassemia then we do the rubella titer this test determines whether the patient has a very good immunity against rubella and um, we do the hepatitis b screen test identify whether the patient is a carrier for the hepatitis B infection. Then we can do the GBS. The GBS is the group B streptococcus test wherein we will obtain a vaginal or anal swab between 35th to 37 weeks of gestation. So we can do the vaginal swab or we do the anus swab between the butt. We can swap between the butt and do a culture and which is done between the 30, between 35 to 37 weeks of gestation. Then we can also do urinalysis. This is, this is a microscopic test we do to examine the pH. We do specific gravity. We do the color of the urine, urine sedimentation. We do urine protein, urine glucose, urine albumin, urine red blood cells, urine red blood cells, urine cat cells. We do urine acetone and we do the urine HCG. All these tests help to identify pregnancy, diabetes mellitus, hypergestation or gestational hypertension, renal disease, and infection. So when we do urinalysis, um, urinalysis, the HCG identify whether the woman is pregnant. When we do the diabetes mellitus test, the blood glucose determines that, the urine glucose determines that. When we do the gestational hypertension, we can find by finding urine protein in the urine can identify that 
and we can also do the urine acetone which can identify whether there's a renal disease and other conditions coming the cast cells also wbc where there's infection so all these tests can be done during our prenatal visit, uh, visitation then we can do the one hour blood glucose tolerance test wherein the patient will ingest a particular amount of glucose or they will take in the glucose through iv infusion then we will identify what the patient is having hyperglycemia now this test is done um the one hour test it does not the patient does not have to be fasting they walk to the clinic regularly and they give them 50 grams of glucose they will drink it or they will ingest it or it goes through iv and then we monitor the blood glucose after one hour we take a blood glucose sample and do it after one hour um this is done to identify why the patient has hyperglycemia and it is done at the initial visit at for at risk parents so if the mother is at risk on her first uh, visit, uh, visitation at the, at the clinic for prenatal we can do this particular test for her on the first visit or it can be done between 24 to 28 weeks of gestation for all pregnant women now any result that is above 140 milligrams per deciliter requires follow-up so this test <coughs> Your very first time at the, at the clinic for your prenatal visit, if you're at Rick's mother, we can do this one hour glucose tolerance test. Now, the one hour glucose tolerance test does not require fasting. If you walk in and we give you one or 50 gram of glucose or dextrose to ingest. So when you ingest this uh, this dextrose, um, what happens next is that uh, we wait after one hour and we we'll do your blood test to see how well that your blood insulin or your body insulin lower the blood glucose so any glucose level above 140 milligrams per deciliter after one hour of the injection we will do a follow-up examination which will lead us to the three hour blood glucose uh, glucose tolerance test now in the three hour glucose tolerance test this requires fasting the previous one hour did not require fasting the three hour requires fasting now, in the three-hour glucose tolerance test, the patient needs to fast overnight and get to the hospital. The patient will ingest 100 gram of dextrose or glucose solution. Then, we'll wait for at least one, two, and three hours. So, at one-hour interval, we'll do the blood draw and do the blood test. At two-hour interval, we'll do the blood draw and do the blood test. And at three-hour interval, We'll do a blood draw and do a blood test so we'll do three different tests in the three hour blood glucose test with every hour after the injection of 100 ml of glucose now <clears throat> in this situation we we'll use it to screen the patient so um would we we'll use in clients who have elevated one hour glucose test to do the other test to diagnose diabetes mellitus so a diagnosis of gestational diabetes requires Two of these tests to be elevated above 140. So the three-hour blood glucose, if two of the three-hour blood glucose are elevated above 140, then the patient is diagnosed as having gestational diabetes mellitus. That's how the test can be done. Um, then we can also do the pap smell test. We call it the Papa Nicola test. The Papa Nicola test is used to screen patients who have cervical who are at risk for cervical cancer. Happy simplest text step two or human papilloma virus. So we can use this test to test patients with that with those conditions. 
We can also do the cervical culture or vaginal culture to detect the uh, streptococcus B hemolytic disease or to detect bacterial vaginosis or we can do it to detect gonorrhea or chlamydia infection which are also um, STIs. STIs. Uh, we can do for the patient, we can do the um, PPD test, that is the, the, the PPD test for tuberculosis, the, the, the PPD tuberculin skin test. We can do that particular to determine what the patient has uh, had been exposed to, to, to tuberculosis or TB. Or we can do a chest x-ray after 20 weeks of gestation. Now, we cannot do a chest x-ray. We cannot do an x-ray for a patient who is below 20 weeks of gestation. The patient needs to be above 20 weeks of gestation before we can do the chest x-ray. Chest x-ray can confirm the test for the PPD. So after a PPD test, we can do a chest x-ray, but this can only be done for patients above 20 weeks of gestation um, to, identify, to identify the exposure to tuberculosis. We can also do the VDRL. It is a test that we must do. It is a must-do test. It is done to, to screen for syphilis for patients. It is, a, it is a matter of must. It is amended by the law that patients should do the VDRL test when they get pregnant. Um, we can do the HIV test. The HIV can detect whether there is an active infection of uh, the HIV virus, um, which, is, which, which is also a matter of must for all pregnant women unless the client refuses the testing then we can we can explore other means we can also do the toxoplasmosis test we can do which is, which include and other infections we can do the rubella we can do the cyclomegalovirus and a happy virus they are called the touch the touch uh screening the touch is t-o-r-c-h t stands for toxoplasmosis the o stands for other infections the r stands for rubella the um the C stands for cytomegalovirus and the H stands for herpes virus. So all these tests are done. When you do the touch test, the touch screening, it is screening to see whether it is whether this group of infection are capable of crossing the placenta, which can cross the placenta and can also affect the fetal development. That's why you're doing all these tests to be the touch test. So the touch test, they are serious infections that are very powerful and very strong enough. To cross the placenta and infect the fetus in utero. We can do the maternal serum alpha fetoprotein test. The MSAFP is called maternal serum alpha fetoprotein test. This MSAFP test, it is done between the 15 to the 22nd weeks of pregnancy. Now, between this time, we use it to rule out Down syndrome if it is low, meaning if we do the maternal fetal alpha fetoprotein test if it is lower than normal amount is it is, 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 is the patient will have uh, the patient is likely to have down syndrome now if it is if it is uh if it is high the patient is having the patient might have neural tube defect so when we do the maternal serum alpha fetoprotein test we are to identify other two things either if it is lower than normal range it is it means the child has down syndrome or the fetal has down syndrome if it's above the regular range, meaning the fetal has neural tube defects. Um, then I hope you remember all, all, all of those neural tube defects. Um, then the provider will decide to use a more reliable test 
uh, which is like uh, the quad screening test of the instead of the MSAFP. So meaning the quad screening test can be done between 16 to 18 weeks of gestation. That is, uh, I'm sorry. So if we do the maternal serum protein, serum, maternal serum alpha fetoprotein test, if it is not successful, then we'll do the quad screen test. So this this uh, this will include the AFP, the alpha fetoprotein test, the inhibin A, the, the inhibin A, and all these tests will also analyze the HCG and other extradiol or extroid hormones produced during pregnancy. So this test should be done to prepare the female to know exactly what the female is going through before pregnancy. Any question? So we, we, we go on to also talk to the mother, um, provide counseling to the, for the mother in every stage of her pregnancy. So in the first trimester, we provide those uh, physical and psychosocial changes that, she, that she's going to go through. We'll talk about that. We provide those comfort measures that she needs to go through to provide relief for her when she's pregnant in the first trimester. We provide for her lifestyle changes, exercise, the importance of exercise, stress, nutrition, sexual health, dental care, over-the-counter medication and prescription medication, the use of tobaccos, alcohol, substance use, STI. We, we provide health education on these things to make sure they avoid them because they can pose risk to that of the mother's life and also the fetus. We want to go ahead and talk about fetal growth and fetal development in utero, prenatal exercises, how to expect those laboratory tests that she needs to do as we as the pregnancy progresses. These are things we'll talk about in the first trimester. Then in the second trimester of pregnancy, we'll discuss with her the benefit of breastfeeding. When you breastfeed a child, why a child tends to get in breastfeeding. We'll talk about that. We'll provide for her those discomforts that she's going to go through and the relief measure for those discomfort. We'll talk about her sex and her pregnancy, how she can use other methods to relax during labor. We'll talk about her posture, her body mechanics, clothing that she needs to wear, wearing seat belt for safety and traveling around, fetal movement, how, what are some of those things she's going to have, like complications, like a preterm labor, Gestational diabetes, mellitus, gestational hypertension, premature rupture of the membranes. We'll discuss all these things in the in the second trimester, uh, about second trimester, about to to the female. She needs to understand these things and know exactly what she's going through. Then we will begin to prepare for childbirth at the late, 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 late second trimester phase. Um, she will begin to attend classes. We'll review the various birthing methods she wants to use. We'll develop a birth plan. Whether it is verbal or it is written agreement, it will be developed and will go through labor and delivery stages step by step. Then when we enter the third trimester, um, we also provide the prep up for childbearing. She's going to attend classes and birth plans. She will try to learn some coping mechanisms that comes, that comes with labor and delivery, some breathing and techniques for realization. She will use uh, counter pressure, the air flourish, if, uh, the efflourish uh, and counter pressure method will apply heat and cold pad, touch, massage, and other therapy like water therapy. She will begin to use all these things to know exactly how it works, how is it, how can it be done. We, we will also talk about acupuncture and acupressure. We'll discuss music and aromatherapy therapy with her. 
which can also be a help to her to minimize the labor she's going to be going through. We discuss pain management, whether she wants to have uh, natural childbirth or epidural, or she want to use a dollar, uh, dollar, dollar during her child during her labor stage. We talk about all these things. Um, we talk about infant care and postpartum care at the third trimester. These are things we discuss with the patient who is coming to give birth. Most likely, when it is a primary gravity, your first pregnancy, we want to go through these things and provide everything the best way possible. We discuss with the patient those common discomfort of pregnancy and the measure taken to. To, to to stop the discomfort like when it comes to nausea and vomiting we can eat dry cracker or dry toast for 30 minutes to one hour before uh, rising up in the morning uh, before rising in the morning to help to relieve discomfort with the patient need to avoid an empty stomach and ingesting spicy greasy or gas forming foods to avoid nausea and vomiting so in the end class you'll see this thing when you are pregnant and you having nausea and vomiting you want to eat crackers or dry toast for at least 30 minutes before you can wake up from bed in the morning. Now, um, you want to avoid spicy food, greasy food, any food that contains gas forming or that, that, that contains gas in it. You want to avoid those food to prevent nausea and vomiting. Um, we're talking about breast, breast, uh, breast pain or when the breast becomes tender. You want to make sure um, in the first trimester, this can occur in the first trimester. Um, you want to wear a bra that provides adequate support to the breast to prevent this breast pains. You want to also talk about urinary frequency that she's going to have this in the second and in the first and third trimester. The patient is going to have more urinary frequency in the first and third trimester. Um, in these trimesters, patient needs to empty her bladder frequently as much as possible. And they will de to decrease fluid intake at their time. They can use perineal pads. They can do cardio exercises, which can help them to um, to 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 prevent incontinence and leakage of urine during coughing and sneezing. So the cardio exercise is like you're gonna like you're gonna pee and you hold a pee. So the the muscle between um, the bladder between the legs that muscle that when you Poop, when you go to poop, you can be holding together to, to, to contract your anus. That is the muscle we use to perform the cages exercise on that muscle. It's called the pubococcygeal muscle. You got to tighten the muscle and relax the muscle to help to do the cages exercise. It's called the pubococcygeal muscle. It is the muscle between the legs that when you are pooping, when you are peeing, you hold tight. To stop the pee or to stop the poo from coming out. That's the muscle you're gonna release and contract, release and tighten, release and tighten several times in the day. That is what we call a cages exercise. Um, we gotta provide uh, caution and education on urinary infection and other vaginal flora infection, uh, vaginal flora. Fatigue, she needs to do frequent rest and do some exercises. It comes in the first and third trimester. Hard burns can also occur in second and third trimester um, when the abdomen, when, when the stomach is displaced by the uterus enlargement. Um, in this case, there will be increased progesterone, which will cause heartburn. So, progesterone increase in the body during pregnancy can cause heartburn. So, the patient needs to eat small, frequent meals. They cannot eat a lot of meal at once, or they cannot go with empty stomach. 
and they cannot go with too full stomach. They got to eat small, frequent meals and allow to be allowed to sit up at least 30 minutes after eating. They can't eat and lie down. They're going to create heartburn. So they got to eat, sit up for 30 minutes. We also look at constipation. The pregnant woman can get constipated between the second and third trimester of pregnancy. At this period, we want to encourage increased fluid intake. They got to eat diet high in fibers. Exercise regularly. This can help to move the bowel. Then they are at risk for hemorrhoid, PAR. Hemorrhoids might occur during the second and third trimester of pregnancy. They need to do a warm sit bath. S-I-T-Z, sit bath. They gotta do a warm sit bath. They gotta do a witch hazel pad. They will use a witch, witch, W-I-T-C-A. They call it witch hazel, H-A-Z-E-L. They call it witch hazel pad. They gotta use that. And they gotta apply some other typical ointment to relieve the discomfort that comes with hemorrhoids. These are measures we we'll have to learn and, and, and know how to use them because in the end class, we'll have these measures and we'll know how to put them in. Um, they can some of, they can have bite aches can come in in the second and third trimester also. The patient has to do uh, pelvic tilting exercises during this period. They got to use upper body mechanics by using the legs to lift, not the back. So in body mechanic, we use the legs to lift, not the back. Because the back can get damaged if we are pregnant and we're using the back to lift objects. The legs need to be need to be used. The legs need to be used to lift objects rather than the back. And we gotta do it in a, we gotta lie down in a side lying position, not in supine, because the mother is gonna have problem with uh, circulation if we do that. Um Patients who are pregnant can, can go through SOB, shoulder of breath, dyspnea can occur when the uterus becomes enlarged. So we have to limit inspiration, which can limit inspiration. So the patient should maintain a posture. They should sleep on extra pillow to raise the head of the bear or raise their head when they are going to bear to help them to grab more air while sleeping to prevent dyspnea. Um, they can have leg cramps in the third trimester in most cases. Um, the leg cramps can be due to compression of the lower extremity uh, when there's a nerve and blood vessel enlargement. This can occur. So this can be the result of poor peripheral circulation as well as imbalance. Um, they can have also, so in this case, we want to apply heat over the foot. We want to apply heat over the affected muscle of the leg. Do a foot massage. To help to release the left cramps, um, the client the client should notify the doctor if the cramps occurs more frequently. Then the doctor needs to be notified. Then they can also have varicose veins or lower extremity edema. It can occur in the second and third trimester of pregnancy. If this occurs, the patient should rest her legs elevated, and they should avoid wearing constricted clothing. They should wear supported holes. They should avoid sitting or standing for long period of times. They should not sit with the leg crossed over each other, like over the knees. They should sleep in the left lateral position, and they should exercise moderately frequent to make sure they are walking, which can help to stimulate venous return. These are things the pregnant woman needs to know. And one of the the three last, last things, one is uh, they're going to have gingivitis, nasal stuffiness, and epistasis. These are common with, uh, with pregnancy. 
Nose bleed is what we call the epistasis. Now, in this situation, it can occur when we have increased level of the hormone called estrogen. So when we have increased level of estrogen circulating within the body due to pregnancy, we can have gingivitis, we can have nasal stiffness, we can have epistasis, which is nose bleed. So in this situation, the patient should gently brush her teeth and observe good dental hygiene. They should use humidifier and they should use normal saline in the nose to clean the nose or to spray the nose to avoid this nose, uh, the nose stuffiness. And the patient can also have forced contraction, forced labor, which, which we call the Braxton Hayes contraction. Now, in this situation, this can occur in the first trimester. We we'll talk, we'll talk about the first presenter sign of pregnancy. We said during the presenter sign of pregnancy, Braxton Hayes contraction is one of those signs that come in when we are having presenter signs of pregnancy. It comes in the first trimester. So if it occurs in this period, you should just walk around. When you walk around, the contraction goes away. <clears throat> then when you sit back, sometimes it might come back. Now, if you are walking around, if it is not going away in the third trimester, then it means you are having a true labor. But if it comes in and you move around, you change position, and the contraction goes away, meaning you are having a Braxton Hayes contraction, which is a false contraction. Um, mother can also have supine hypertension. Is when the mother lies on her back and the weight is 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 is, is, is on the uterus from the vena is pressing on the uterus, which can also suppress the vena cavus, both the inferior and the superior vena cavus. When you suppress this, the mother can have a abrupt drop in the BP, which is called supine hypertension. So, so in this is what we call the supine hypertension. Um, in this situation, we have to teach the patient how to lie down on the left side or in a semi-sitting position with her knees slightly flexed. This can help to prevent supine hypertension. And then we have other danger signs that occur during pregnancy. These danger signs include, like in the first trimester, we are engaged with a, one, you're going to have burning on urination, which is a sign of infection. You're going to have severe vomiting, which is what we call hyperemesis gravidarum. You can have diarrhea, which is a, the sign going to be it's a sign of infection. Um, you, can, you can have fever or chills. It's also a sign of infection. You can have abdominal cramping or vaginal bleeding. These are, this, these are signs of miscarriage or pregnancy in the tube. So these are first trimester danger signs that when you have these signs, you have to report it promptly to the doctor. In second trimester and third trimester, um, there can be a rupture of the membrane where, where you can see a gush of fluid coming from uh, the uterus or uh, from the cervix, which can be a sign of rupture of the membrane. There can be placenta bleeding, which can be linked with uh, placenta previa or placenta abruptus. There can be abdominal pains, which can be premature labor and other placenta problem or pregnancy in the tube. These are all these are all. Um, Danger sign, like you are pregnant in third trimester or second trimester and you have blurred vision. Blurred vision means the patient is having some gestational hypertension. The face is edematous or the hands are all swollen. These are signs of gestational hypertension. Patient has epigastric pains. These are signs of gestational hypertension. Um, the patient has some, when they, when they have hyperglycemia, they're going to have concurrent occurrence of the face will look flush and they will have footed breath. 
they will have fast breathing and they're going to have increased test and urination and they might have headache so all of these signs are like uh, like i'm talking about um hyperglycemia so when you have hyperglycemia the sun's going to be you're going to have um flush of dry skin foot of breath rapid breathing increased stress and urination and you're going to have headache these are all signs of hyperglycemia so when the woman is when you are pregnant and you have these symptoms come in these signs come in they are um dangerous signs in pregnancy um and also for hypoglycemia they're going to have cold pale skin weakness tremors irritability and they can have light headedness all of these signs we need to look out for them in pregnancy any question